Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. Today we're going to be in Psalm 88. As you can tell, a very cheery psalm, a very happy psalm. It's a psalm you send people on their birthday or graduation or whatever it might be. Uh, when it comes to psalms, this is actually probably the saddest and most depressing psalm in the Psalter. Whether you do or don't like country music, you can appreciate it from an artistic standpoint because a lot of country music deals with sorrow. This is the country song of the Old Testament, okay? This is the country song of the Psalms where everything is going bad. If you know anything about country music, a good country song has to have the following elements. First, something bad has to happen to your dog. Your dog runs away, your dog gets run over, whatever it might be, okay? Number two, something bad has to happen to your girl. She leaves you, she cheats on you, you find out she was actually a distant relative because it's the country, whatever it is. That's something that happens in, uh, in country songs. Number three, you're either drinking too much or too little, you can't get enough whiskey or whatever it is, that's an element of country songs. Number four, you have to have some problem with your job or your boss or you've got laid off, whatever it might be. Number five, you have to say something about a farm. And then number six, you have to say something about the troops or something that is patriotic. That, put those elements together and you have the perfect country song. There's a great scene from the show Parks and Rec where they have a country singer named Chip McCapp and the camera zooms in on him and he is writing this line for his country song. I'll bring the girls, you bring the beer, and the troops will bring the freedom. That's part of the thing there in his country song. And so this is the country song of the Psalms because it's just so sad. Everything bad is happening here to the psalmist. God has forsaken him. His friends have forsaken him. His dog probably got ran over by a chariot or something. All the bad things are happening here in Psalm 88. And so this is a psalm that we're, we're teaching intentionally so that we can teach you how to read psalms of lament that are this dark. See, there are other psalms of lament, even some that we've gone through in this series, but they typically end on a happy note. They'll say, God, you've forsaken me, my enemies have surrounded me, but I trust that you will deliver me. And there's something happy. There is none of that throughout this entire psalm. There is no hope, there is no sunshine, there is no but I trust you throughout the entire psalm. This is my favorite psalm personally, and here's why. Because it is just so honest and real and painful because when you're going through suffering, a lot of times it's not, but God delivered me. A lot of times when you're going through suffering, it just hurts the entire time and then you die. That's the harsh reality of life in a broken and fallen world. And so as we work through this psalm, what I wanna do is I wanna show you nine things about suffering. Nine things I wanna teach you in the psalm about suffering because anytime you talk about suffering, you always have a listening audience because we are going through suffering. You're probably individually going through suffering in your own life, whatever that may be. And so I hope that you find this psalm to be helpful, dark though it is. Let's, let's pray and then we'll jump into the text. <clears throat> Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and we confess that you are great and we need help. And so we ask that you would be with us as we study this difficult text where the psalmist feels forsaken by you, forsaken by others, and it ends with darkness being his closest companions. Would you, would you help us? We uh, confess that we need you. We, we don't suffer well. Would you help us? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's start with the title. Remember these uh, Hebrew titles, not the titles given by your English authors, but the Hebrew titles are actually in the Hebrew text. So let's start with that. It says this, a song. So the first thing we know about it is it's meant to be sung. Songs don't just have to be happy in church. You can have sorrowful, even vengeful, as we saw a few weeks ago, psalms and songs that you sing in church. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, 
To the choir master, according to Machalat Leonot, that's how that's pronounced in Hebrew, impress your friends, Machalat Leonot, a maskil, which is like a musical or liturgical term, we don't know exactly what that means, but it has to do with something about the way the song was uh, to be sung, of Heman the Ezraite. So let's look at a few things just in the title that I want you to see. First of all, when it says, according to Machalat Leonot, what does that mean? Sometimes in the Psalms, when you're given a Psalm, it will tell you what tune you're supposed to sing it to. So let's imagine that you had never done the ABC song and you said, Zach, how do I do the ABC song? Jeff mentioned this a few weeks ago. Well, I would give you the tune of what song? Twinkle, twinkle, little star, or let this blow your mind, Ba Ba Black Sheep's pretty close too. Okay? So what you're doing is you're singing the song to a tune that you already know. This Hebrew phrase here, machalat leanot, means in Hebrew the suffering of affliction or illness to afflict. You know that song, hello darkness, my old friend? You know that song? That's kind of how you're supposed to sing this song. So to the tune of some sad song, to, to the tune of some dark song, that's how you should sing it. That's what he's saying there, okay? Now, who is Heman? By the way, that's not He-Man, which would be awesome. That's Heman in Hebrew, Heman the Ezraite. Who is Heman? Heman is probably uh, one of King David or somebody around the time of King David's Tim Hollis. Tim Hollis is our worship minister, so Heman is probably this worship minister in Israel, and so he is supposed to know how to sing this song. Let me give you some passages. We're not exactly sure who this Heman is. There is some debate among scholars, but let me give you some places where a guy named Heman is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 6, 31 through 33. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song. Notice the worship and the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served in their sons of the sons of the Kohathites, Heman, the singer, the son of Joel, son of Samuel. Or 1 Chronicles 16.42, Heman and Jedathan had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song, okay? So that is probably who uh, this man is, Heman. He's probably this worship leader that is meant to lead worship, kind of this choir director, if you will, for the people of Israel. Let's jump into verses one through two. It says this. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. Here's the first thing that I want you to see about suffering. Suffering draws you closer to God. That's the first point I want you to see. Suffering actually draws you closer to God. And in that sense, it is completely counterintuitive. It is completely counterintuitive. We think that normal life is not suffering. We think when suffering happens, something odd is happening to us, despite the fact that the Bible says that when bad things happen to you, do not think something odd is happening to you. Okay, we, we, for, we forget that suffering is, is counterintuitive. So I'll give you a little example. I have uh, kind of this weird tension thing in my neck with my neck muscles. And so uh, a guy here at the church who's a physical therapist who's a friend of mine came into my office and he started working on my neck, which was weird because I'm like laying on the floor and he's like in a massage position and people are walking by like, what kind of counseling is this? What is happening in here? And so he's working on my neck and he's letting me know all these things about how my back needs to be adjusted. I learned a bunch of things in this lesson, okay? You might already know this. First of all, I learned that my ribs are attached to my spine. Who knew? Probably everyone but me. I would be a terrible medical doctor because I know nothing about the body, but I learned that my ribs were actually attached to my spine. They didn't just float. I don't know what happened in my mind, what, they, what I thought they did. I also learned you have muscle in between your ribs. I did not know this till this last year, and I'm 34, okay? I thought you could just go up and like poke someone in the lung or just go up and like touch their heart or something. But it's weird that I've eaten ribs, so I know there's not just bones, there's meat there, so I, I never put two and two together because I've never eaten human ribs. That's probably what it was, okay? 
Now, what I was doing is I had this, this, like, these tight muscles in my neck or whatever, and I was always stretching them like this. I was always stretching them because my neck felt tight, and I was stretching them, and I always had my chin down. And he said, you're actually doing the opposite of what you need to be doing. If you want your head up and you want your shoulders back, you don't need to be stretching those. You need to make them tighter and work them out and stretch your chest so that you can stand up straight. It was completely counterintuitive. I thought, your neck is sore, stretch your neck. And he's like, the problem is not your neck, it's something behind it. It's completely counterintuitive. Now, here's the thing. Suffering is the same way. We think that suffering is the worst thing that can happen. We think that suffering is something that should be avoided at all cost. We think something weird is happening to us when we're suffering. The first thing that you're gonna see right out of the gate is that the suffering draws you closer to God. Notice that he's crying out day and night. Let me say it this way. Do you pray harder when things are going well or when they're going poorly? Do you trust God more when things are going well or when things are going poorly? You see, when things are going well, you don't think you need Jesus as much, right? You've got a good job and health and money in the bank. You don't need Jesus. You have a Lexus. And so what suffering teaches us is that it actually is something that draws us close to God. The worst thing we can have is not suffering. It's being far from God who is the source of all joy. Other thing I want you to see just right out of the gate with verses one through two is notice the persistence as he cries out day and night. Luke 18, one through seven, Jesus tells this story. And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. I like that. The judge is like, I'm awesome. I don't care about anybody. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The point of that parable is not that you're annoying God and God is this evil judge. That's not the point. That's not where you're supposed to draw the analogy in that parable. You're supposed to draw the analogy in the parable of the persistence of the widow, that she keeps coming and she keeps coming, even though she's tempted to lose heart and she keeps doing it, know that eventually God will answer the prayer. Maybe not in this life, but eventually will answer the prayer. Verses three through five. For my soul is full of troubles. Listen to how visceral this is. And my life draws near to Sheol. What's Sheol? That's where you go in Hebrew theology when you die. It's the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Second thing I want you to see about suffering in this text, you will experience overwhelming suffering. You heard it here first. You will experience overwhelming suffering. You don't get to get out of that. I, I hate when people try to make Christianity seem easy. It is extremely difficult. The Bible is clear that in this life you will have tribulation, Jesus says, that you will be persecuted, that you will suffer. Not only that, but you, there's this overwhelming guilt we all deal with because we're sinners and God has given us not just difficult, but impossible commands. I want to write a book called Your Worst Life Now and dedicate it to Joel Osteen. Because biblically, your worst life is now. Your best life is to come. Christianity is hard and it is difficult and you will experience overwhelming suffering. If you haven't yet, you will. If you haven't yet, you will. It's not an if, it is a win. And if you've never been at that place to where you are just weeping and you are crying and you are on your face and you are begging God to move and you keep begging and begging and it just feels like the sky has turned into iron, and your prayers are bouncing off of the heavens. 
If you've never been at that place where you are asking God every day, please kill me, please kill me. You wake up in the morning and you think, another day, please kill me. And it just feels like, no matter how hard you pray or how hard you cry, it feels like God is just giving you the finger and saying, no. If you've never been at that place, you will. You will at some point. If you've been there, you might be there again. You will experience overwhelming suffering. You'll experience it. Look in verse three. He says, when he says, for my soul is full of troubles. Here's my question to you. What are his troubles? You can tell he's pretty stressed out. What is actually afflicting him? Now, here's what's interesting about the text. The text never tells you why he's suffering explicitly. In other Psalms, it does. My enemies have surrounded me. And so you realize, oh, if God takes away his enemies, everything is good. This Psalm doesn't do that. And here's why. Because God intends this Psalm to be applied to however you're suffering, no matter what way that you're suffering. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe you're suffering with your kids. Maybe you're suffering physically or in a health issue. Maybe you're suffering emotionally or psychologically with stress, fear, anxiety. Maybe you're suffering financially. Whatever way you're suffering, you're able to apply this text to your situation. And that's why God leaves it generic, okay? So had the text just said, my enemies have surrounded me, you'd think, great, I'll apply this text when I go to war. But when I'm not at war, I don't need to. But it's intentionally generic. Now, if I had to take a stab in the dark to guess what he's going through, I would most likely say illness. And here's why. Later on in the psalm, he'll say that he, stru- he suffered this way from his youth. He'll constantly talk about how he's getting closer to death. And he'll also say that his friends have left him, which oftentimes happened in the ancient world when someone was chronically ill. But the text doesn't just say it because I think the point is that it's meant to be applied however you're suffering, okay? Also notice how honest and open the psalmist is with God. You can be open and honest with God. He already knows how you feel anyway. He already knows. So, so when you pray to God, just talk to him normally. Get rid of all your thine and thou and betwixtes and just be honest. One of the things that I would hate sometimes when I was visiting churches is I'd visit a church and someone would get up and they would do the fake happy. You know the fake happy? Hey church, how are we doing? I can't hear you. Whoa, the sound meter is gone. They do all this kind of ridiculous stuff. And I would think, or they'd get up and they'd say something like this. Isn't it great to be in God's house? And I'd think, one, this isn't God's house. The Bible says God does not dwell in temple made by human hands. Number two, no, sometimes it's not good. Read this psalm. There is a way that you can learn in this psalm how to worship God, not just when you're happy, but when you are doing horribly bad. When you're doing horribly bad. That's what this psalm will teach you. Now, it is never right for you to be angry with God, okay? Because when you're angry with God, what you're doing is you're saying he did something wrong. It's never right for you to do that. But it's okay if you're angry to simply verbalize it. It's okay if you're angry, he already knows anyway. So be respectful. When you're angry at God, the problem is not God, it's you. But you can be open and honest with God. Notice the language here. You've cast me away. You've pushed me away with your hand. You've turned your face from me. I'm near death. I've got one foot in the grave and one foot here and you're not listening. Verses six through seven. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. Third thing I want you to see. God has ordained your suffering. God has ordained your suffering. The Bible here is gonna use the word you or your when talking about God 25 times in this short psalm. 
There is no random suffering in the Bible. God has ordained your suffering. Well, wait a second, Zach. That makes me uncomfortable. I thought that God just ordained good things and suffering just kind of happened. Let me read you some texts. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. God is speaking here. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God is the one who kills somebody. God is the one who kills somebody with COVID. God is the one who gives your child cancer. God is sovereign over everything. Isaiah 45, five through seven. I am the Lord and there is no other. In case you're thinking that some other God is somehow controlling the stuff, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Look at this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. The Hebrew word is stronger. It's just the Hebrew word ra. It means evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, this does not mean that God creates evil like it's a substance, like he makes a mountain and he makes the ocean and he makes a clump of stuff called evil. That's not the point. The idea is when calamity strikes, it's because of the Lord's hand. Whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a tornado, whatever the calamity is, war, God has ordained these things. Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to him, by the way, to set this passage up, this is where Moses is told to go and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And what does Moses do? He gets scared and says, I don't talk good. That's basically what he says. I imagine him saying it in kind of a Larry the Cable Guy accent. He's worried about his eloquence that he can't speak well. And here's what God says to him. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is the one who makes people blind. God is the one who makes people deaf. God is the one who has somebody born with a disability. Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph has been thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely charged with uh, sexual immorality, hashtag me too, and he's talking to his brothers, here's what he says to them about their evil. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Can God give a straight lick with a crooked stick? You bet he can. Can God hit a bullseye with a crooked arrow? You bet he can. Can God use evil for an ultimately good purpose? You bet he can. But not only is he sovereign over just bad things that happen, he's sovereign over the devil. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over not only just good, but good and evil. Job 1.12. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he, that's Job, has, uh, is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Notice here that the devil is having to get permission from God. Is that not weird to anybody? We think of the devil as this super rebel. God has him on a leash. To quote Luther, the devil is God's devil. He has to get permission of how much to afflict Job and then he can't go beyond the permission that God gives him. If that one doesn't stress you out enough, let me give you some more. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Wait a second, God gives demons to people? According to 1 Samuel, he does. First Kings 22, 23, now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. And then even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12, seven through nine, because God cares about Paul, Paul's seen these visions, God doesn't want Paul to become conceited and uh, arrogant, and so what he does is this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn, notice God is sovereignly orchestrating this, a thorn was given me in the flesh. What is that thorn? A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now let me tell you why this is the greatest comfort. So what I just said just freaked some of, some of you out. You said, wait a second, Zach. I'm okay with God being sovereign over good stuff, but I'm not okay with knowing that I'm suffering because God has ordained it. He didn't have to ordain it this way. Why am I going through this? How does that help? The fact that God only does what's ultimately good and that he loves you is the most comforting thing you can know when you're going through suffering. Don't tell me the world belongs to drunks that cross over double yellow lines and slam into your family and kill them and it's just randomness. Don't tell me that when your child gets leukemia or your house burns down, that that's just randomness. The most encouraging thing you can hear is that God has ordained your suffering, which means he'll be with you in it and he's somehow using it for your ultimate good. God being sovereign over evil and over suffering is the most comforting thing because nothing happens outside of his hand. I'll give you an example. My son hates getting shots, okay, as most kids do. My son hates getting shots, but we have to get shots because it's, you know, medicine exists and it's important. So we get shots. And so before we go get shots, we don't just spring it on him. We just don't go to the doctor and then he's getting a shot. We talk to him beforehand and we say, hey, buddy, we're going to have to get a shot today. And he starts crying and he says, I don't want to get a shot. And I say, I know, buddy. I know you don't want to get a shot. And then he'll start asking questions. Will you go with me? You bet. I'll go with you and I'll hold your hand. Is it going to hurt? It's going to hurt a little bit. Not a lot, but it'll hurt a little bit. Can I cry? Yes, you can cry. When I was a little kid, I cried from shots too. Can I scream? No, you may not throw a fit. You may act normal or I'll put my whole body weight on you and hold you down, but you're getting the shot either way, okay? You're getting the shot either way. Now, tell me what's more comforting as he has to get the shot, which he still doesn't like. If he just randomly had to get a shot and no one was around, or if I am walking him through the process and I am there with him, and I'm holding his hand, and I'm holding him when he cries, and I'm there the entire time. God being sovereign over your suffering is the only hope that you have. It's the only hope that you have. Now, I want you to see something else here. Look in verse seven. When he's crying out to all these things that God is doing to him, he's very clear that God is the one doing it. What does it mean to be under God's wrath? Can you still be a true believer and question your salvation or be afraid of going to hell? Obviously, the psalmist is. So when he says he's under God's wrath, it can mean one of two things. One, he's using the word wrath just as a generic term for everything bad that's happening. Kind of like how in insurance, if somebody's house gets destroyed by a tornado, you say it's an act of God. He, he could be just using the term wrath just to mean all these bad things are happening and he's just calling it wrath. But more likely, he probably feels as though he's actually under God's wrath. He's probably doubting his salvation. He's doubting whether or not God loves him. He probably feels hated by God. So here's a question you may have. Zach, can I be someone who still knows Christ and yet feel scared and yet feel like he's mad at me and maybe be afraid of dying like this guy as he keeps mentioning death? Maybe be afraid of going to hell and still be a Christian? And the answer is yes, of course you can. John Calvin says this, When we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or a security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are far from possessing a peaceful conscience, never interrupted by any disturbance. On the other hand, we want to deny that they may fall out of or depart from their confidence in the divine mercy, no matter how much they may be troubled. Can you doubt your salvation? Sure. Do you actually fall out of God's grace because you don't believe hard enough? No way. So what I want you to see on verse seven is the fourth thing I want you to see about suffering. Suffering does not mean that God is mad at you or doesn't love you. Suffering does not mean that God is mad at you or doesn't love you. Notice, in fact, I think the, the opposite is true in that it seems like the people God loves the most are the ones that he sometimes puts through the most suffering. 
I mean, if you need an example, like you know, Jesus and the apostles and most famous people in church history, they get martyred or killed or whatever it is. Just because you're going through suffering, you shouldn't think God hates me or he's mad at me. He has said, you will go through suffering though I love you, though I love you. Verses eight and nine, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. A few things here. Verse eight, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Fifth thing to see about suffering. You will suffer in more than just one way. You will suffer in more than just one way. Suffering seems to have a snowball effect. So notice the first part of the psalm, it was all his suffering directly from God. Now he's mentioning all the suffering from other people that his friends, his family, his closest companions have now shunned him. Maybe that's the type of suffering you're going through. Maybe you have been harmed by somebody. Maybe you've had somebody cheat on you. Maybe you've had uh, a problem with somebody at your workplace. Maybe you've had someone stab you in the back. Maybe you have bitterness towards somebody. You will not just suffer from God's ordination in hand, but God has also ordained that you would suffer from the hands of others, from the hands of others. Look at verse nine. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Just two quick notes here. First of all, when he says the word eye there, he's probably not struggling with like sight, physical blindness. Eye is a synecdoche to talk about his view of hope. It's almost like you see this tunnel where you might get out and over time that tunnel gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's what he's referencing. And when he says that he spreads out his hands, that's a reference to prayer and worship. Okay? In the Bible, it, we're told several times that when we worship or pray, we can spread out our hands. It's a way of showing God glory and having this posture of receiving. So you'll notice sometimes in worship here at Parkway, people will raise their hands. Why? Because it's biblical. Okay? It's good and right to do that. If you, you don't have to, but if you want to do that, that's okay. But that's what he means by spreading out his hands is I come before you every day on my knees with my hands up and ask you to help and you keep telling me no. That's what he's saying, that you're not listening, you're not hearing this. Verses 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your righteousness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Number six on suffering. Suffering causes extreme despair. Suffering causes extreme despair. Now, these verses are the most stressful part of this entire psalm. Do you know why? Because we as Christians would answer every one of these questions with a yes. We would say, do you work wonders for the dead, God? Of course you do. There's an afterlife. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Of course they do, because resurrection. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Well, it certainly was with Jesus, and we would say yes to every single one of these questions, but what does the psalmist expect us to say on these? Absolutely not. It's a resounding no. These aren't questions. These are rhetorical questions. These are statements disguised as questions. What the psalmist is saying is this. God, you don't work wonders for the dead. You don't rise people up. You don't have steadfast love for those in the grave. You don't care for those in darkness. That's what he's saying. So how on earth are we supposed to understand that? Because we can't just take that and we can just throw out our Bible as hopeless contradictions or we can be better theologians and figure out what's actually going on here. What some scholars will say is they'll say, the reason he's saying God doesn't do these things is because he doesn't know about the New Testament yet. The psalmist lives in the Old Testament and God reveals himself over time progressively. And so the New Testament is much clearer about what happens to you when you die and resurrection and all that stuff. Two problems with that kind of thinking. 
One, the psalmist isn't just writing this psalm, God is. And God knows all these things. Number two, the Old Testament is full of passages talking about an afterlife and judgment and even bodily resurrection is several places in the Old Testament. So I don't think that argument works. Why then is he saying you don't help those when they've died? Why is he saying that? Here's the answer, okay? He's not trying to give us a full systematic theology and a doctrine of eschatology about what happens to you when you die. That's not his point. What he is saying is this, God, I want you to deliver me, and if I die, you haven't delivered me. That's what he's saying. To say it more clearly, he's not saying that God doesn't work miracles for the dead. What he's saying is he doesn't feel like, he doesn't believe that God works those miracles because of how he feels. This is not written from God's perspective. God does care for the dead. It's written from his perspective of someone who's going through anguish. It's his misperception that causes him to say this. I'll give you an example. My daughter and I, she's three, we, uh, we went to Whataburger for a little uh, daddy date. And uh, so we're laughing and we're eating our food and she got a strawberry soda, which she thought was super exciting. She called it her special drink. She gets her special drink and we're at Whataburger and we're talking and we're laughing. And we look out the window and there's a Chick-fil-A right next to us. Okay, there's a Chick-fil-A right there. And a man dressed up in a cow costume in the, the line there at Chick-fil-A for the cars to go through, right? Because Chick-fil-A's mascot is a cow that says eat more chicken because that's way less weird than a chicken that says eat me, right? So that's their, their mascot is this cow. And she's like, look, daddy. And I look and she's like, a cow, moo, look at that cow. And I was like, that's right, baby. It's a cow. That's actually a man that's in a cow costume. And she's excited. She's watching him. He goes around the corner and she looks at me and she goes, where'd the monster go? And I said, baby, there, there's no monster Again, let me reiterate this. It is a man in a cow costume, okay? It's her perspective that was wrong, causing her to misperceive reality. That's what's going on in this text. What he is saying is he's not trying to give us a full theology of what happens to you when you die. That's not his point. He is saying, God, I'm crying out to you to deliver me and I'm getting close to death and you're about to run out of time to be faithful. That's what he's saying. You're about to run out of time to be faithful. Now, what is a badden, okay? See that reference there? Do the departed rise to praise you? Say, law is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in a bad. And let me explain a little bit about what's going on here. A lot of times in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the Hebrews will use references to pagan or Canaanite mythology to make a point, okay? Abaddon is the god of the dead in ancient Near Eastern mythology, okay? That's who Abaddon is. Now, that doesn't mean that the authors actually think that Abaddon exists or something like that. They're using a common cultural understanding and way of speaking to make their point. I'll give you another example. Several times in the Old Testament, it mentions this creature, Leviathan, okay? What is Leviathan? Leviathan is a Canaanite sea god. It's a Canaanite sea monster. It's seen as this huge snake that controls the ocean, that controls the sea. When the Bible says that God puts a hook through the nose of Leviathan, or God crushes the head of Leviathan, it's not saying Leviathan actually exists, what it's simply doing is referring to a story that the Israelites would have been familiar with to make the point that Yahweh is better than the Canaanite gods. That's the point, okay? It's similar today as if I were to say, you know, Luke Skywalker is a Jedi. That does not mean that Luke Skywalker or Jedis even exist. It's simply me referring to something that you understand. You with me? So Abaddon is seen in ancient Near Eastern mythology as this god of the dead, and so also the place where people go is called Abaddon. If you know Greek mythology, this is similar to Hades. So if you die in Greek mythology, you go down and you pay the ferryman, Charon is his name, and he rides you across the river Styx, 
and then you are in Hades. But Hades is also the name of the god of the underworld. The underworld's called Hades, and the god of the underworld is called Hades, okay? That's what he means when he says Abaddon. He's not saying whether or not there's a god of the underworld or something like that. He's using the term like we would use the term Hades. Does God care for those that are in this netherworld that are, uh, that are not of the land of the living? That's simply what he means there. Proverbs 27, 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Or interestingly enough, Revelation 9, 11. They have as king over them the angel, that's the heavenly being, of the bottomless pit. You didn't know there was an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon, okay? Now, why is it called the land of forgetfulness? For two reasons. One, that God has forgotten you. After all, doesn't Jesus say, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living? And it's also because you're not able to praise. There's no hope. Not only has God forgotten you, but you've forgotten God, okay? So I want you to see that something that's really interesting here is he has this hopelessness. He has this absolute hopelessness. Can you still remain faithful when you have all these doubts? Absolutely. The opposite of, uh, of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disobedience. It's kind of like courage and fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Bravery is not the absence of fear. You would not send a robot into battle, and if that robot got killed or destroyed, you'd think, wow, that was a really brave robot, okay? You have to have the capacity to be afraid, to have the capacity to be brave. In the same way, when you're going through turmoil and you're going through all this trouble, you can still be faithful, you can still have faith, you can still trust God, even though everything inside of you is screaming that it's not true. Even though everything inside of you has fear and anxiety and doubt, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but disobedience. That, that doubt and disbelief are not the same thing. So in the same way that the only way you have bravery is by overcoming and fighting fear, really the only way you have faith is through overcoming and fighting those doubts. Verses 13 through 14. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Listen to these next few lines here. O Lord, why do you cast away my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Seventh thing I want you to see about suffering. God often won't tell you why you're suffering. God often won't tell you why you're suffering. Notice that's what the psalmist is asking for. Why did you do this? Why did you cast me away? Why have you hidden your face from me? God often will not tell you why you're suffering. There's two reasons for this, okay? First, we as dumb humans are not smart enough to comprehend the plans of God, okay? So if my son wants to know why we're thinking about refinancing our house, will I be able to explain it to him if he's little? No, the problem's not with me, it's with him. The gap between you and God is infinitely more than that. So we as broken humans made out of the dirt that choke on our own spit and trip over our own feet cannot fathom the plans of God, okay? just for some levity, because I realize this is a difficult lesson, I looked up some ridiculous things that people have Googled to see how smart humans really are, to see whether or not we are uh, as sophisticated as we think. Let me share with you some of these Googles, if I may. These Google searches. The first one, <clears throat> why can't I own a Canadian? We've all asked that, I think, at some point, right? That wasn't one person that had thousands and thousands of people ask that same question. Can blind people see the taste of Cinnamon Toast Crunch? That was one. These are the humans that want an answer from God of why he does what he does, okay? Because they say it's a, it's a taste you can see. And so the question is, can blind people see the taste? Okay. I like this next one. It's a good thinker. What would happen if I hired two private investigators to follow each other? It's a good one. What would a chair look like if your knees bent the other way? 
This next one had thousands of searches. Can I eat my Himalayan salt lamp? You know, you get this lamp that's got this salt and people are constantly like sitting there late at night and they're like, I think I'm gonna try to eat that. Let me check with the internet first about what I should and shouldn't eat that's an electric uh, appliance, right? This next one's not a question. Again, it just has thousands of uh, Google searches. Never put a sock in a toaster. Just kind of a statement, good little life verse for you. Another one, I think rhinos are just obese unicorns, also genius thinking. And then my favorite one, why isn't the number 11 pronounced 1T1, okay? So the first thing you need to understand is God, who is infinite, you cannot fathom, even if he wanted to explain his plans to you, you could not understand. You don't know what's happening. You're a creature, you're made out of the dirt. You're taken from dust and to dust you shall return. But here's the second one. I think this one's more important. So listen, everybody listen. If you get nothing else from this lesson, hear what I'm about to say, okay? Why does God not tell us when we're suffering why we're suffering? Here's why. Because then you would trust the answer and not God. Then you would trust the answer and not God. If God showed up and said, the reason you're suffering is because I'm gonna use it for this and here's the thing, and by the way, I'm gonna get you out of it later, you'd say, oh great, I don't have to trust you. It makes sense to me. I can trust me. Instead, what God is doing is he is making you trust that you believe that he loves you and he's good even when you don't see a way out. Even when you don't see a way out. In the book of Job, which is the premier book on suffering. If you're going through suffering, you should read the book of Job. In the book of Job, God takes everything away from Job, okay? His kids are killed. He loses all his money and livestock. His wife is an awful, terrible woman. His friends uh, give him bad advice and forsake him. He gets super sick. He's got all the bad sufferings, okay? He has all these bad things that happen to you in the book of Job. And do you know what the entire book of Job is? Job asking why. Chapter after chapter after chapter, Job is saying, why? Why? I was righteous. I was blameless. Why am I going through this, God? Why? What did I do? What's the issue? What's going to happen? Why? For chapter after chapter, God, give me an answer. Why? He even says that he wants to take God to court because he thinks God has messed up and he wants to be vindicated. And when God shows up to give Job an answer, here's what God says. I make billions of stars. I hang the earth on nothing. You are not my equal. You don't get to talk to me like that. You see, the entire book of Job is Job asking why, but God shows up with a who answer. God shows up with a who answer. Who do you think you are? I am God and I control everything. I don't owe you an answer. I don't owe you an explanation because what God wants us to do while we're suffering is to trust him. He doesn't want us to trust the answer. We don't have to trust him. We can just trust us. God wants us to say in our hearts each day when we're suffering, do I still think God is good and is he still sovereign? Do I still think that he loves me and he's still sovereign? The reason God doesn't give you an answer like he doesn't give the psalmist an answer is because God wants you to trust God. Do you believe he loves you? Do you believe he's good? You don't have to understand why you're getting a shot if you know you have a good father. Verses 13 through 14. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Verses 15 through 18. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become Darkness, there it is. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Number eight, sometimes the suffering doesn't go away. Sometimes the suffering 
doesn't go away. The reason I love Psalm 88 is because it doesn't let God off the hook. The reason I love Psalm 88 is because it says, sometimes you will suffer and you will suffer and you will suffer and you will ask for God to deliver you and the sky will be silent and that's it. That is then your lot in life. You see, what Psalm 88 does is it brings up the most difficult question for us to ask. Let me see how Calvinistic you are. Let me see how reformed you really are, okay? You have to, as a Christian, deal with this fact that God could have ordained less suffering for your life and he still got the same amount of glory but he decided not to do it. God is putting you through difficult things he didn't have to do. He could have made you grow in sanctification. He still could have saved you, still could have made you grow in sanctification without any of the suffering. He could have picked somebody other than Adam that would need of the tree. He could have not created the devil if he knows that he's gonna sin. God could have created a world with no suffering and no fall and everybody's just doing great and God would have gotten the same amount of glory because God's glory he gets from himself and not from his creation. The same glory God had when he's just father, son, and spirit for all eternity is the same glory he has today. So at the end of the day, you have to wrestle with this issue. Knowing that God could have made life for humans way easier without suffering and still done whatever he wanted to do and he decided not to do so. And yet, he's still good and he still loves you and he still has a plan whether you see it or not. That's the thing you're gonna have to wrestle with. That's what's difficult about Psalm 88. God has ordained suffering in your life that he didn't have to give you and he still could have sanctified you another way and yet he gave it to you and he doesn't tell us why. And sometimes we cry and ask him to deliver us and he doesn't deliver us from that suffering. Martin Luther says this in going through suffering. <clears throat> it's a great quote, it's a long quote, but I think it's worth, uh, worth reading. For as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harry you and will make a real doctor of you. By doctor, he means professor, he means theologian. You wanna be a good theologian? You gotta wrestle with the devil. And by his assaults will teach you to seek and love God's word. I am deeply indebted to my papist, by that he means Roman Catholic opponents, through the devil's raging, they have beaten, oppressed, and distressed me so much, that is to say, they have made a fairly good theologian of me, okay? As you're having to fight your opponents and fight your enemies, and at this point, it's Luther versus the world, he's thinking, that makes me a really good theologian. I've got to do a lot of Bible study to figure this out. Now, listen to this next part. It's excellent. It is not understanding, reading, or speculation, but living, no, dying and being damned that makes a theologian. You've got to go through that process of wrestling with God, feeling upset with God, feeling like he doesn't hear you, feeling like he's not faithful, and yet he remains faithful. And yet he remains faithful. You see, throughout this entire psalm, there's not a glimmer of hope. This is how the psalm ends, with darkness being his closest friend. That's how the psalm ends. There's not a glimmer of hope. There's nothing in the context that gives you any hope. And yet, the psalm exists. And yet, he's still praying. And yet, he's still writing this psalm. You see, the only reason you can even talk to God this way is because you're already in a relationship with him. Because you're already in a relationship with him. Old Testament scholar Beth Tanner says this. The psalm also teaches a lesson about the real world. For sometimes there is no happy ending. The hard truth is that people suffer and even die, sometimes in horrible circumstances and crying out to a God that seems silent. It also speaks to those who die, feeling as if God is nowhere to be found. For here, their words of fear and anger appear as sacred scripture, showing that God did indeed hear their cries. Now, that's where I'm tempted to stop. I don't wanna let, I don't, I don't wanna let the pressure out on this psalm because it is powerful. But I have to be a faithful theologian, you see. If somebody's just doing biblical studies or just doing Old Testament interpretation, they'll punt. 
They'll cop out. They'll say that and then the sermon will be over. But because we believe in the authority of the Bible, we have to take everything that's said here in context with the rest of the Bible. So I'm gonna give you a ninth point about suffering that isn't in this text, but it is an extension of this as it runs through the rest of the Bible. And here's the ninth point. Resurrection is the solution to our suffering. Resurrection is the solution to your suffering. I meet with people who are suffering in some type of way every single week. And sometimes they ask, Zach, will God get me out of this? And here's my answer, I don't know, I don't know. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. I have a friend that used to be super anxious, super depressed on medication doing horribly and God has completely delivered him from that and now he is the most chill, calm, faithful person ever. But I know other people that will wrestle with the depression, anxiety and fear the rest of their life. I know of another guy that had a terminal form of cancer and now he's totally fine. People prayed for him, he has good doctors, etc. Now he's totally fine. I know another guy that got cancer, woke up with a lump in his chest and died a few weeks later. I don't know if God will get you out of the suffering in this life, but listen to me. You will not suffer forever. There will be an end to your suffering. It just happens at resurrection. Sometimes God gives you extra grace now and delivers you out of your suffering now. He does it, he does it a lot. But you, for those that are tempted to think, am I gonna have to carry this burden forever? Am I gonna suffer forever? You will not suffer forever. You might suffer for the rest of your difficult, painful, miserable life. Then there's eternal bliss. When you take your next 50 years or whatever it is with suffering, compared to eternity, it's nothing. It's a drop in a bucket. But right now it feels overwhelming because it feels like God doesn't care, but he does care. And the whole way we know this is because this psalm exists. This, is, this psalm is God's grace to us to say, humans, I know you're gonna be tempted to fall into complete despair, and yet, here's a psalm expressing your words saying, I hear you and I care. That's what's going on in this psalm. Let me end with this example that I think can be helpful. Do you know what it, it is for, uh, to let a, a, a baby cry it out, right? So sometimes when you have a baby, uh, the baby actually thinks something's wrong, but there's nothing wrong. Okay, the baby's just hardwired to cry when it thinks it needs something. And so what you do, not right away when they're like, you know, two days old or something, but pretty soon you start letting them cry it out. Not for hours, but you know, five minutes. And then when they get a little older, 10 minutes and you let them cry it out. Now, what are you doing when you do that? Well, what you're doing is first you make sure there's nothing wrong. Make sure they're not hungry, they're not cold. Uh, A hair hasn't gotten wrapped around their little toe or something in their pajamas. All kinds of weird stuff happen. What you're doing when you're letting the baby cry it out is this, ready? You're teaching the baby that it's okay and mommy and daddy will take care of the baby even when the baby doesn't feel like it's okay. You're letting the baby know that the baby's actually okay. The baby's crying but shouldn't be crying because it's not cold or hungry or whatever it is. And so that's what you're teaching the baby. Will God make you cry it out to teach you that he loves you and to teach you that you're actually okay in Christ? He'll let the Israelites cry it out for 40 years in the wilderness He'll let you cry it out for your life going through your suffering. You bet he will. What is he teaching you? The same thing you're teaching your kids, that you are okay in Christ. The suffering is there. The suffering hurts. It's real, but it doesn't have the final say. Isaiah 25, eight through nine. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Our loving creator, 
we confess that we are but creatures and uh, we have rebelled against you. I also confess this is a difficult lesson. I pray for everyone in here who is suffering. I pray that you would alleviate it. If you can sanctify us through good things or through suffering, we ask that we'd be sanctified more through good things than through suffering. So I pray for those that are hurting because I, as I look out across the, uh, the congregation, I just see faces I know of people that are suffering. Would you deliver them from that? Because sometimes you do. Sometimes it's like the Psalms where we ask for deliverance and you give us the deliverance now. For those though that you're not going to get them out of their suffering, would you let them know that you love them and one day you will get them out of their suffering? That resurrection ultimately tops. Resurrected bodies don't get sick. Resurrected bodies don't get anxious. Resurrected bodies don't have to deal with this conflict. We look forward to that day. Come Lord Jesus, we need you. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.